Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked all the way to the middle of the fifth canto of Purgatorio. We're going to be at lines 37 through 63 of Canto 5 of Purgatorio. If you don't remember, I'm here to tell you <laughs> that Dante and Virgil have come out of hell. They have found themselves on a bit of a ledge up on Purgatory. There they have met Cato. Cato has sent them down to the bottom of the mountain. Dante's gotten cleaned up by a reed. They saw an angel bring a boatload of people to the shores. They saw a poet or a songster or a musician that Dante may or may not have known. Casella, he started to sing one of Dante's songs. Cato reappeared, shooed them off. They started an arduous climb. They got all the way up to the point where, in fact, they found Manfred, the final Hohenstaufen emperor of the kingdom of Sicily from the Holy Roman Empire. They then continued on a little bit and found Balacqua and some very lazy souls under a rock. We had a lot of discussion about Balacqua. And then they passed on and saw some many more active souls who were running at them and are running away from them and singing and shouting and making a ruckus all on the first true ledge of Mount Purgatory. That's where we are. Those souls have then turned around and run back to the main company of souls to report back that, indeed, there is somebody in the human body here on the slopes of Mount Purgatory. This is my English translation of lines 37 through 63 of Canto 5 of Purgatorio. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com. You can print it off. You can make notes on it. You can read along. There's a way to drop a comment. I am happy to keep talking about this or any passage. Otherwise, let's set in to the passage at hand, lines 37 through 63 of Canto 5 of Purgatorio. I've never seen falling stars cut through a clear sky in the early hours of the night, nor the setting sun cut through the August haze as quickly as those guys whipped around and went back. The moment they got there, the whole cavalry turned and charged us in an unreined frenzy. The number of people pressing us is huge, and they're here to beg from you, the poet Virgil said. But just keep walking and listen as you go along. O oh soul who goes to your happiness with the very limbs you had at your birth, they called out as they came up. Hold up for just a bit. Take a good look. Maybe you've seen some of us. If so, you can take news of him back over there. Hey, why do you keep going? Hey, why don't you stop? All of us were felled at different times by a violent death. We were sinners up to our last hour. That's when the light from heaven made us aware of our condition, so that, repenting and forgiving, we left our lives reconciled with God, who then saddens us with the desire to see him. And I said, even though I stare at your faces, I don't recognize any of them. But if there's any way I can do you a favor, well-born spirits, tell me about it. And I'll make it happen because of this peace that makes me pursue it from world to world, following in the footsteps of this guide. 
a lot to say about this passage. Believe it or not, this passage is packed with problems. We've got two key shifts in this passage that we want to talk about because they're key to the shifting notion of what comedy is about. We also want to talk about what Virgil knows and doesn't know and how Virgil functions inside this passage because he's here even when we don't think he's here. <laughs> and we want to talk about those souls who come rushing up on the pilgrim and his guide Virgil. So let's get started. The passage opens, I've never seen falling stars cut through a clear sky in the early hours of the night, nor the setting sun cut through the August haze as quickly as those guys whipped around and went back. This is a much talked about simile. That is, the falling stars are meteors, the haze, the sun setting, the August. It's it's a little bit confusing, and I have to tell you that in the medieval Florentine, the lines are quite compact and concise. This is one of those points where you can almost feel the rhythm and rhyme of comedy setting in on Dante. He has been good about taking the space he needs in order to make uh, metaphors, images, similes happen. He got better and better at that in Inferno. If you remember, the similes got longer and longer and longer. This one feels very condensed, and it's so condensed that commentators have tripped over its translation. And you should know that my translation is a set of choices that I have made about this passage because it is so condensed. Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. These guys are in a huge hurry. Is it that Dante has, in fact, condensed the language, condensed the number of words chosen to, what do I want to say, miniaturize the simile until it's very tiny to indicate that there is a pressing matter? And the pressing matter has slightly garbled the sense of the passage, just slightly. It's just difficult to translate. And is that the point, that when you're in a rush— Maybe things are not as clear at first, and this may play out in the passage. Let me say one more thing about this. The falling stars and the setting sun and all this, this may be a reference from a work by Virgil, from Virgil's Georgics. It's been noted by commentators often over the centuries. This may be a reference to Book 1, lines 365 through 367 of the Georgics. And let me just explain what it's about in the Georgics, the bit about the falling stars and the setting sun and seeing it through haze and mists and all this stuff, that those passages are all about signs and portents and how to read signs and weather portents and celestial portents in order to farm correctly, in order to live an agrarian life. And so Virgil is kind of listing out what various things mean or could mean if you pay attention to the sky. If that's the place this comes from out of the Georgics, then this simile is essentially, in its original position in Virgil, telling us to pay attention. And in fact, we need to pay really close attention to this passage and to the three speakers who follow, because they're tricky. <laughs> Use the word from the Lord of the Rings, they're tricksy. They 
do in fact put us through our paces and this passage and others that are just ahead of us will put us through our paces. So the origins of this simile for Virgil is how to read signs and portents and pay attention to the sky and it's sitting here and it's condensed and it's very hurried and it's a little garbled in the Florentine and this may all be on purpose, which means that Virgil is still instructing us, this time from the Georgics. He is still informing our reactions, if we're a learned reader, to the passage ahead. Now, you, listen, you don't have to have read the Georgics, but still and nonetheless, Virgil is a part of this, or is he? Ah, let's go on in the passage. Let me start back at the beginning so I get a running start into Virgil's lines. I've never seen falling stars cut through a clear sky in the early hours of the night, nor the setting sun cut through the August haze as quickly as those guys whipped around and went back. The moment they got there, the whole cavalry turned and charged us in an unreined frenzy. The number of people pressing us is huge, and they're here to beg from you, the poet that is, Virgil said, but just keep walking and listen as you go along. There's two interesting things here. One is this secondary imagery of the cavalry charge. It, too, is hurried. I should tell you that by translating it as the whole cavalry turned and charged us in an unreined frenzy, I have used more words than are used in the medieval Italian. The idea here is that when the cavalry charges, you loosen the reins of the horse and the horse is in a giant pack of horses and they're all driving forward so you don't ever touch the reins in in order to keep the horse from balking or stopping this is this very militaristic and wild image but again in the Florentine, it's pretty collapsed. But there's another place in these lines that's collapsed, and that's in Virgil's speech. He says the number of people pressing us is huge, and they're here to beg from you. That word, beg, is curiously lacking an object. Beg what? They're here to beg beg from you. Okay, what does that mean? Don't you beg for something, for money, for food, for a favor? Perhaps we could infer that a favor is sitting behind this verb, but it is missing its object. What does Virgil understand about prayers for the dead? How can Virgil then be an effective teacher if he doesn't totally understand the purposes of praying for the dead? This is a major question, and I think Dante leads us a bit by the hand here by dropping the object of the verb to beg or to pray. Virgil may not fully understand what's at stake. These souls want this living pilgrim to go back to earth. Well, they are on earth. <laughs> not purgatory is on earth. I know I can't, I get, I get this all mixed up in my head because of course to me, purgatory is somewhere in some other realm, but no, it is on earth. So he doesn't want them to go back to earth. They want him to go back to the Northern hemisphere. <laughs> there you go. And there he can pray for them and get others to pray for them 
What does Virgil understand, and how can Virgil be a good guide if he doesn't fully understand the Christian, what do I want to say, theology, ethics, the Christian motivations of the afterlife? Well, it's found in the next line. Virgil says, just keep walking and listen as you go along. Virgil is the goad. In Inferno, Virgil was much more the teacher. In Purgatorio, Virgil will also be the teacher. We'll see it. We'll see it over and over again. But his primary emphasis, his primary motivation, his primary method will be goading. Perhaps this has something to do with Virgil. He isn't almost ran from limbo, right? He <laughs> got close to understanding the truth, but didn't quite see it. He didn't have the full revelation. Oh, talking so much more about this ad. He didn't have the full revelation. Virgil's even going to bring up limbo ahead of us. So we're going to come back and rehearse this question several times. Didn't have the full revelation, therefore wasn't saved. So what was he? He was someone who needed a nudge, revelation, to get over the line. And maybe this is part of why Virgil's here in purgatory. He has experienced the need for a nudge, which he never got. And therefore, he is now the nudge for the pilgrim. He's now the elbow in the side saying, go on, go on, just keep walking. Wow, you don't have to stop to talk to these guys. You can keep walking because we got to get up this giant mountain. Perhaps this is Virgil's fundamental purpose in Purgatorio. Moving on in the passage, the souls begin, O soul, addressing Dante the Pilgrim, who goes to your happiness with the very limbs you had at birth. Now, notice that they don't pay any attention to Virgil. Virgil just spoke, and they don't seem to even say, who's that? Who, Who the heck is that? Who cares? They're just focused on the pilgrim and his body. So, soul who goes to your happiness with the very limbs you had at your birth, they called out as they came up. Hold up for just a bit. Take a good look. Maybe you've even seen some of us. If so, you can take news of him back over there. Notice how they refer to the Northern Hemisphere over there. They seem to have a referential kind of pointing back over there, but they never directly say back to Italy. Later, some souls will. But in these early parts of Purgatorio, they seem to have kind of a vague pointing notion back over there. And then they seem to get very agitated. Hey, why do you keep going? Hey, why don't you stop? Here's what I'd like to point out in this passage. They are speaking chorally. (laughs) They are speaking as a unit. One entire unit of souls is speaking, and this will become more and more the case in Purgatorio. Souls will speak as a group. This will finally blow into full flower in Paradiso, as we will see. But in Purgatorio, we're going to have a lot of souls who talk in choral unison. And in fact, I'm going to use musical terms here. The movement of Purgatory is always monophony to polyphony. Let me explain that. Monophony in musical terminology is essentially singing in unison, one voice, monophony. Polyphony is many voices. It is the musical form coming into vogue in Dante's day. 
what that means to us is that over and over again, we are going to see souls who speak as a single unison monophony, and then they're going to break apart into polyphony. This is exactly what happens in this fifth canto, if you remember from our read-through. These souls are all talking in one voice, and then three souls are going to individuate, and we're going to have three different stories put against each other in a polyphonic format, as if a fugue, like one soul, then one soul, then one soul. And while they don't speak on top of each other the way a fugue or a polyphonic passage of music is built, nonetheless, it leads us to contrast one line of monologue or one passage of monologue with another. It causes us to think polyphonically. The movement in Purgatorio is monophony to polyphony. We should also call attention to what they want. They want the pilgrim in his body to take news of them back over there. This is a little bit different from Inferno, and let's just call it out to make sure we understand it. In Inferno, the dead either wanted to justify themselves, Francesca, or they wanted to continue their fame, Brunetto Latini, make sure everybody remembers what I wrote. Or once we get down into lower parts of hell, the damned want to be forgotten. Don't call attention to me. Don't take my name. Guido de Montefeltro says, well, I'll tell you this story because no one's ever gotten back to the world of the living from here. They want to be forgotten. But here, the souls want something out of Dante. In fact, the relationship between the pilgrim and the dead in Purgatorio is transactional. This is what becomes so interesting. There is a transactional piece to the relationship with Brunetto Latini. There is a transactional piece to the relationship with Francesca, but not quite so overt. Latini comes the closest with his, don't forget the works that I wrote. Okay, yes, that's the closest. But in Purgatorio, this is the overarching theme. We've already seen it several times. Have Constance pray for me, as Manfred says. Make sure that someone back over there is praying for me. Balacqua yearns but doesn't get because he knows no one even remembers him. So there's this transactional relationship between the souls and the pilgrim. And this is quite different. And we should say it's quite modern to see the relationship between humans as transactional. I want to come back to that at the end of the podcast, but let's just let it set where it is right now. Speaking in one voice, they say, all of us were felt at different times by a violent death. We were sinners up to our last hour. That's when the light of heaven made us aware of our condition. There's one little thing I want to point out here. They're clearly telling us that they've all died violently, so they were denied last rites. They couldn't confess. They didn't get this extreme unction. They couldn't get the final rites in a typical Catholic Christian death. Some of them maybe even repented at the last minute, as we'll see. There's an interesting word here in the Florentine, and I just want to point it out. When they say all of us were felled at different times by a violent death, my translation's a little bit waggly there. And the reason it's waggly is that phrase at different times. I'm really playing off the word gia 
in the medieval Florentine. And Singleton points out that this word gia indicates that these guys didn't all die at the same moment. That is in a battle. It is a needed qualification because remember they run at the pilgrim in unreined frenzy in a cavalry charge. Given that earlier metaphor, Dante has the need to insert this small little word gia to indicate that they died at different moments, not as a unit, say, at the Battle of Monteperti, which means that our poet is paying attention to the implications of his own text. We may know that by this point in reading Dante, but it is always interesting to watch a poet catch the implications of her or his own text and then try to clarify it. So we had a metaphor about a cavalry charge, and now we have guys that explain we didn't all die together. That shows us that the poet is aware of the larger implications of his poetic language. There are two fundamental keys in this passage, and they're found in the last nine lines. Let me read backwards a little bit. I'm going to start where the souls run up to the pilgrim and then get to the last nine lines. O soul who goes to your happiness with the very limbs you had at your birth, they called out as they came up. Hold up for just a bit. Take a good look. Maybe you've even seen some of us. If so, you can take news of him back over there. Hey, why do you keep going? Hey, why don't you stop? All of us were felled at different times by a violent death. We were sinners up to our last hour. That's when the light from heaven made us aware of our condition so that repenting and forgiving, we left our lives reconciled with God, who then saddens us with the desire to see him. And I, this is Dante the Pilgrim, and I said, even though I stare at your faces, I don't recognize any of them. But if there's any way I can do you a favor, well-born spirits, tell me about it, and I'll make it happen because of this peace that makes me pursue it from world to world, following in the footsteps of this guide. Notice that Dante takes them back to Virgil. (laughs) They may not have noticed that Virgil spoke or seemed to pay no attention to Virgil, but Dante ends this segment before the firstism steps out to talk by calling us back to Virgil. But that's not one of my keys. Here are the two keys. First, when they died a violent death, they died repenting and forgiving. We should just stop and think about this for a minute. So they've hit a violent death. They then repent, but they forgive as well. This may be an important key to understanding how they got here. We did see Manfred and perhaps Balakwa repent at the last, but they didn't add this forgiving bit. And if we think of Purgatorio as a progression up, up morally, up allegorically, then these souls are partly higher for reasons we'll talk about later, but also because they died repenting and forgiving. Both of these actions, again, don't require the church or any sacrament. They are instead 
individual actions. I believe this may be a key to Dante's understanding of how the church works. We know with Manfred that the church can put you in a position in purgatory in which you have to wait 30 years for every year you were excommunicated, but the church can't finally keep you out of heaven. Interesting tweak on church authoritarian theology. And here, a second individualistic act, forgiving. And here's the second key here. Dante says, I I look at you and I don't know who any of you are, uh, but if there's any way I can do you a favor, tell me about it and I'll make it happen because of the peace that makes me pursue it from world to world, following in the footsteps of this guy. Peace. This seems a refinement of Dante's journey's motivation. Remember back to the beginning of Inferno, we were told that Dante the Pilgrim was like a soul who came out of swimming across a bad strait of water and looked back on it and the waters of the lake of his heart were stilled. And we found out that he was in trouble and there was this idea of finding a place of rest or a place where the waters are not so troubled. But now we find out that the purpose of the journey is peace from world to world. Now, just think about this for a minute. He could have said a million things. He could have said, I'll make it happen because of the face of God, which I'm pursuing from world to world. Or um, I'll make it happen because of Beatrice, who I'm pursuing from world to world. Or I'll make it happen because of love, which I'm pursuing from world to world. He didn't. He said peace. Peace is nice because it goes back to that cavalry charge, unreigned frenzy, dying violently at death. Peace is wrapping up this passage nicely. But at the same time, he's refining the motivation of the journey. Now we know something about what the pilgrim is seeking and maybe the poet, too. Two keys in the passage, forgiving and peace. Now let's talk about five problems in this passage. First, Manfred died a violent death. Why is he not here? What's different from these souls and their violent deaths and Manfred's? We're going to talk about that in the episodes ahead as the souls step out and speak. But when we first encounter this passage and these souls say, you know, we all died a violent death at the last hour. And just at the last hour, we were made aware of our condition by the light of heaven. That's getting really close to Manfred. What is the difference between Manfred and these souls? That's one problem. Second problem, that line, which I keep stopping on when I read it, that they died, you know, with their lives reconciled with God, who then saddens us with the desire to see him, saddens us. These are the prisoners of hope, as I've told you, and they are burdened by the fact that their desire is now inflamed to see God. So if I wanted to put this in a modern and maybe non-Christian context, their soul is inflamed for something beyond themselves. Their soul is on fire with desire for something that exceeds their own soul's limits. I just keep needing to tell you this. Desire is a sexually charged word, and it's supposed to be in Dante. And they are saddened because they cannot fulfill that desire. As if you were in love with someone, saw them all the time, they didn't 
paying attention to you, or let's say you saw them and you couldn't get to them, or I don't know, let's say you see somebody on Instagram Reels or TikTok and you kind of have a thing for this person, but there's really no way to get to them from where you are, and so it kind of brings a hollowness to you. That's this. The divine purpose is saddening at this moment. That is a problem in the text, going toward happiness while being sad. The third problem is that phrase, well-born spirits. It's in contrast to the phrase we saw over and over again in Inferno, bad-born spirits. And I told you there, it's problematic because it seems to indicate that some people were made for heaven and some people were made for hell. If God knows everything and is in control of everything, then isn't God in control of who ultimately goes to heaven and hell? And I know the answer is free will, right? That's always the answer that's given. Well, people have the free will. But if they have free will, doesn't God already know their choices? And in fact, didn't God make them so that their will was exercised in certain ways? Didn't he put them in certain situations so that their will is exercised in certain ways? And again, Dante is at a crossroads of theology that is problematic for all of Christian theology. And that is, how do you have a God that's in control of everything that also damns and saves various peoples? And here we have it dropped, well-born spirits. Well, they are well-born. They're headed toward heaven, ultimately. But at the same time, it's bringing up this problem. And Dante is going to want to make the will the center of the human psyche, the very center of human motivation, the center, in fact, of your own salvation. We saw this in Inferno. Sin is a choice. And yet at the same time, occasionally Dante would say, bad-born spirits. Mm. So what happens here? So it's retrospective. So God knew all along. Unclear in the theology and always a problem. Here is another problem, a fourth problem in this passage. The transactional nature of the relationship between the souls and the pilgrim. They say, hey, when you get back over there, you can spread news about us. Let me ask you. Is that a very Christian morality? Is that the right kind of morality? I realize that we live in a transactional world in which people look at other people as ways to get things that they want. And yet at the same time, is that really a good moral stance? Now, for Dante, it's the truth. You can go back and you can pray for us, these souls know. But again, let me just say that there is a moral quandary under this, and that is the relationship of the pilgrim to the souls in purgatory is transactional, which may not finally be a decent Christian motivation, or I can take the Christian out of it, may not finally be a decent motivation to carry on doing good. And here's the last problem in this passage. Dante stares in their faces and says, I don't recognize any of you. (laughs) Remember I told you that they were all contemporaries of Dante? They are. Here's an even bigger problem. Dante can and perhaps even did know at least two of these souls. He looks at them and sees them and says, I can't recognize you. And they're going to step out and tell their stories yet they are humans, that Dante himself could have known and, in fact, may well have known in real life. 
So have they been disfigured or transfigured or changed in some way so that he doesn't recognize them? Is this a little bit of Dantean irony that, oh, I don't, I don't recognize any of you, and yet two souls are going to step forward and, well, three are, and two of them are souls that Dante actually could have recognized? Is it playfulness? Is Dante kind of <laughs> nudging us and saying, pay attention? Are we supposed to smirk when Dante says this? Or has something happened to these souls that has made them unrecognizable? All of this is what we're going to try to answer in the three monologues that lie ahead of us. I'm not going to read this passage again because I've read it several times during this podcast and gone back and reread and reread certain lines. So I'm not going to touch it again. But I want to say to you that it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you could rate it, if you could write a rating, write a review on any platform you're on. I saw some reviews come in from the UK this week. I saw a review come in from uh, the US this week. I really appreciate that. No matter where you're hearing this podcast, a review is a fabulous way to help me in this otherwise unsupported work of walking with Dante. We got three souls ahead of us. We're about to meet the first of the three. We're going to take them one at a time to get there. You got to stick with me in this walk. And if you're just dropping in here, let me say that <laughs> a lot behind us. Season one is all of Inferno and now we're in season two of Purgatorio. You might want to catch up or just start walking with us here. I'm Mark Scarborough and I'll see you next time.